Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This right now is both work and play, and we're lucky that we get to have these bridge conversations and take a look a little bit at the water that we're swimming in. You know, you have chosen to architect this podcast as a way of sharing knowledge, as a way of sharing stories, as a way of making things accessible as a as a form of giving and this is part of your work in the world you know and that is part of your conversation with the meaning of your own lives and this is part of my conversation with the meaning of my life does that make sense it raises the stakes it does. It does this is not stakes. just us goofing <laughs> up. hey everybody welcome to the show this is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my always whenever co-host, Rodney Evans. <laughs> hey, everyone. We are also joined today by Gail Karen Young, a psychologist by training who works in organizational development and leadership development within organizations and with leaders who are encountering challenges or seeking a better way. Gail, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to join you. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a lot. So I've sort of loosely coined it as people and systems because we share so much in common about the way we think about and approach this work of change and becoming. So we'll see where we go. But before we do all that fun unpacking, we, of course, must check in. We must. We will. We do. Uh, we will start this episode like all the other episodes with a check-in round question for all three of us. And because of a little <laughs> bit of chattering that we were doing before we hit record, we're going to go with a check-in question related to dog ownership or parenting, depending on how you talk about these things. So the question for today is, what has pleasantly surprised you about having dogs or dog? Uh, <laughs> and we'll go Aaron and then Gail and I will finish it out. I think so. We've had, Britt and I have had many dogs off and on throughout our 21 years together. But the most recent dog is Kaiser, the miniature Schnauzer. And what was interesting about him that really surprised me is we have an eight-year-old son. We have a house here in, in Colorado. We kind of had this whole family thing going on. And it felt like adding a dog wouldn't really change that dynamic. But adding a dog like legitimately changed the family dynamic. It changed mm. the way it feels to be at home. It changed the way that like the size of the family felt the whole thing. It was like adding a family member in a way that I did not expect. And in a way that's been very nourishing. You know, since we're going to be talking about complexity and systems. So my two dogs were election day dogs and they were inherently <laughs> a bit of a surprise. So, you know, we're six, seven, eight months into this uh, pandemic and our neighbors get a dog. And my husband says, you know, the, there's a new litter. Why don't we just go to see them? I've never had a dog in my life. I didn't know that nobody goes to just see puppies. <laughs> and so 
somehow we came home with two dogs. Like what happened? And it was interesting because you have a relative degree of equilibrium, right? We've got an unsettling event coming up because it's just right before the election. And there's a lot of tension in the air around that. And it was interesting adding these two little completely dependent lives. And of course, the sleep deprivation in the early days of it. And so the (laughs) systems that we'd had as a couple to navigate our home life in pandemic, all of a sudden just broke with the addition of these two lives. And so that adaptation was a real, it was, first of all, fascinating. The other thing that I would say that about the dogs is they have taught me about love. And I thought mm. I was pretty cogent about love. But the fact that they were so happy that I just walked downstairs in the morning without <laughs> having to do anything or be anything is it's just a constant source of wonder and a source of, of real joy in, in 2020 and 2021. That's so lovely. <laughs> I um I also have a pandemic puppy. We had an older dog named Banjo and we adopted Rosie last March. And, you know, I thought it would be sort of similar to having had this one that we've had for eight years. But what I didn't think about and had forgotten about with Banjo is how funny puppies are. And <laughs> there are so many times and like she just plays and does silly stuff and like amuses herself when no one is paying attention to her in ways that truly make me lol. And like (laughs) yesterday, I was just Uh sitting in the living room at the end of a long day and she just came in with a toy and started throwing it in the air for herself. And I'm like by myself laughing out loud. (laughs) And particularly during a pandemic, like there just are not as many moments of kismet that are really, really funny. And having a puppy do that stuff is, is surprising in the best way. Completely agree there. I totally agree there. That was a great checking question. Whenever there's, you know, a group of dog folks about, we should pull that (laughs) one out, dust it off. Okay. So today's topic is people and systems and whatever we want to talk about. And so I guess we wanted to start by asking you one line in your official bio stands out saying that you were in the process of becoming a monk when you became an executive instead. So we were hoping that you could tell us about your path toward monkhood and why you decided to go a different route. That requires a step back into sort of like the history in some sense of of spirituality. I came here to the United States as an immigrant, and I came when I was two. And my parents were generally raised within the Christian tradition, and like many teenagers, you know, I was seeking. I was like, some of this makes sense, some of this doesn't make sense. And and so I got really, really fascinated by world religions in general. And a, a friend of mine who is a Zen master says, you know, that she became such because, not because she was particularly good, but just because she happened to love the divine. And so mm. I just got really fascinated with teachings from all different territories and all different stripes. And there was something about, particularly Kuan Yin, as a figure that I really loved. And it sort of invited me further into Buddhism. And then in the course of learning about psychology, two of my mentors recommended that I go study with this at the time, or what they considered a rogue Zen master. And I said, that sounds intriguing. Dropped everything I was doing and flew to a Zen center in the middle of Salt Lake City, Utah, to study with him for a while. And I was really fascinated because one of the best definitions of Zen I've heard is to be one with your own life, Mm. which is, of course, its own koan. What does that mean? What does it mean to be in full presence, to meet reality how it is and not how you want it to be, and yet to hold the paradox that part of our gift and capacity of being human is to imagine 
including imagining a different way to be, a different future. And so living within those paradoxes is part of what drew me to both poetry and to spirituality, because they offer language and concepts that speak to that deeper level of reality. So I was in process of studying and also still consulting in organizational life. And I got the recruiting call to be the Wikimedia Foundation, which runs Wikipedia and all of its sister free knowledge projects, its chief talent and culture officer, which is a bit of a mouthful and an ironic one again, because nobody owns culture in any organizational <laughs> system. And we can absolutely get into that. But it is interesting to have somebody whose explicit role is to shepherd it and to shepherd mm -hmm. it um, through both working with people. I used to say that I kept an ongoing heat map of the three floors of the foundation and just knowing, just having a sense of what the dynamics were. And also working what I call the mythic and the mundane, the origin story, the values, the way that we dealt with crisis, and then also the very pragmatic aspects of people and culture, policy, maternity, paternity leave, compensation, rewards and recognition, how exits are handled, et cetera. And so I thought about this in some ways as having both an internal and external conversation. Wikipedia is probably uh, in some ways a very atheist agnostic organization, as you might imagine, in, in flavor of an organization that is deeply committed to building the world's largest free online encyclopedia um, that's committed to making knowledge free. And I believe in that fiercely, that access to knowledge is a prerequisite for social change at scale. And in, in my interior life, I very much held it as creating sangha, you know, creating mm -hmm. community and a com particular community of people committed to a mission-centered endeavor with a technology platform in its base. So it's a really interesting organization where a movement meets an organizational structure that lives on top of a technology platform. And so holding it like sangha shaped my approach to both the work and the people and yet in ways that I didn't ever feel like it needed to be an explicit part of the conversation. The explicit part of the conversation had to do with the um, business and people needs and having those met in the organizational context and the organizational situations that came up. My role had been uh, a bit unfilled when I came in. And so my first day of landing at the organization, my general counsel hands me a list of seven <laughs> fairly major ways that the organization is out of compliance. <laughs> that needs to be addressed immediately. And I'm like, all right, I guess that's the first thing I'm doing. And doing those really tangible actions is so necessary to build the sort of internal credibility and trustworthiness to then go further and go farther with what you can do when there's trust in the system, especially when you're you start to develop a reputation for doing slightly wonky things. So um, I, I I do think that spiritual element was incredibly important in the way that I held the role and it offered me some grounding mm -hmm. in an incredibly complex system. Mm -hmm. So I have heard you talk about the mythic and the mundane in other places. And I want to mm -hmm. just test something with you because, you know, I want to make sure I understand it. Also, I feel like this aligns to how a, a thing that we think and talk about a lot, but I don't want to make that assumption if I'm wrong. So- mm -hmm. We talk a lot in our work about principles and practices. Mm -hmm. And often the way that I think about this in doing transformation work inside of complex systems is that if we are 
coaching practices that are aligned to principles, then they're like in a feedback loop together. And ultimately, Mm -hmm. the principles become so ingrained in the humans that comprise the system that the new practices that they invent long after we're gone will be principles aligned. Because after having lived in that loop, they're like, they become aware of where there's divergence and where there's incongruity between the two. Mm-hmm. Is that like, does that align with your orientation around the mythic and the mundane or, or not so much? It does. In fact, I really love that as, as a set of orienting ways to think about it. So part of it is that I spent a little bit of time studying with mythologists. And of course, my husband is a poet. So when you think about culture, mm-hmm. you know, and this is where that principles piece comes in, because it's an articulation of culture at a certain level. Mm-hmm. Culture is both subtle and overt. You know, it's it's these old stories. It gets it's what gets repeated at the water cooler. It's 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 this is how it works. I remember walking to one organization and having them tell me that you know if I mess up too badly, I'll probably get promoted. You know, that's <laughs> transmission. It's like okay, I'm not sure I want to work here, but that's interesting. It, you know, it's a transmission of a sort. And so those the the formal and informal stories, including the origin stories, you know, from which principles should be derived, are important. And what principles allow when they're made explicit is an opportunity to create alignment between the origin story and the practices of an organization. Because origin stories are wonky and they're all over the place and some of them are deliberate and some of them not deliberate and organizations do what they do, which is they live their way into them. You know, And so I think principles, when they're well-founded, you come into them with a certain idealism and then they continue to teach you over time. But one of the things that happens is that that principles, which I'm assuming are in some way aligned to value, so we're getting to make some of our assumptions clear, they come under pressure in different ways around organizational scale. So for instance, you can take a value that Wikipedia had around transparency, huge value in the organization. And that's a principle and there are, there are practices aligned to it. It looks very different when you're a 10-person organization versus a 50 versus a 200-person organization. And so when that principle comes under pressure um, because of scale or external events or even internal events. Mm-hmm. Things happen inside the organization. The temptation is um, to protect someone's privacy, which can feel in conflict with the other principle that's espoused. Mm-hmm. The quality of conversation around that principle and the way the practices evolve helps the organization stay in alignment and avoid what I call unintentional organizational hypocrisy. Totally. Often it's unintentional. Sometimes it's intentional, which is a whole different thing. But often, you know, it is just um, a lack of leadership capacity sometimes to evolve the conversation as the organization grows. And sometimes it's not even a lack of capacity, it's a lack of attention, mm-hmm. you know, or because they're attending to other things because organizational scale comes with all sorts of very tangible problems. And so you're not necessarily thinking of the constant uh, adjustment and alignment to the principles and practices as they unfold, especially if you're working on, on trying to raise your next round, right? So the interplay of these things, the mythic and the mundane, needs, sometimes I talk about it as a way of shaping attention. And talking about it in terms of principles and practices is a great way of shaping attention to these things and making it more robust so that they can support the organization as it scales and grows and don't become don't become part of the white water of the organization at a particular time of crisis. It's funny we talk a lot on the show and at the ready about how when you really start digging down on organizational development and organizational design and this whole idea of culture 
at some point, everything just becomes a paradox. Yes. And so the, the trick is like, it's a trade-off, a paradox or both. And the trick is to kind of learn how to have that nuanced conversation. So I guess you've talked a bit about conversational leadership as a concept. I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you could talk more about what that looks like in practice. So part of it is that we are always, and this is a little bit of the Zen background as well, and this is drawing on my husband's work. He's a poet, David White, um, who talks about the conversational nature of reality. You know, we are always an encounter with otherness, sometimes otherness within ourselves, sometimes otherness in the environment, right? And so it is the quality of that conversation that mediates our experience. You know, are we having a full, robust conversation? Are we having a shy conversation? Are we having a fearful conversation? And that extends at a very tangible level to the people around you, like people managing direct reports, peers, other. But it's also with these intangible organizational constructs. And one of those paradoxes that you just triggered for me is, is around organizational well-being. I don't think it's an organization's job to make people happy mm -hmm. or make them productive or make them um, whole. But I do think that leaders who don't attend to the well-being of their employees, especially when external variables like COVID are in play and, and issues of fundamental safety, as when the U.S. is caught within race riots, if one isn't aware and attentive of the impact of those on individual employees, then I think a leader gets themselves into trouble. So how do you thread the needle between not making it the organization's responsibility to make people whole, as if you could do that in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. And yet hold as an individual with care and concern for those around you, that that's an important variable in their lives and that that's part of organizational life because we are much more permeable than we think we are. The old notion of leaving the professional, leaving the personal at home and only including the professional in the workplace is a very, um, it, it just doesn't work, right? It's ridiculous. All of our, it's completely ridiculous. All of our early experiences of authority, power, family dynamics, all of that gets played out on the canvas of the workplace, whether we want it to or not. All of our patterns around whether we lean in, whether we get more controlling, whether we get more fearful, whether we get more critical in times of stress, we carry all of that into the organizational work setting. And so that is a particular form of conversation. You know, your own ways of being, your own patterns of being. And this is where I got fascinated as a psychologist about the ways that we get in our own way. Mm -hmm. all of those ways of being and how they interact with the circumstance in which you find yourself. Like that is the fundamental conversation. And work, architects, just because of where we spend our time in a day, the nature of those conversations, this right now is both work and play. And we're lucky that we get to have these bridge mm -hmm. conversations and take a look a little bit at the water that we're swimming in. And it's, it's both literally conversation and a way of engagement. You know, mm -hmm. you have chosen to architect this podcast as a way of sharing knowledge, as a way of sharing story, as a way of making things accessible as a, as a form of giving. And this is part of your work in the world. You know, and that is part of your conversation with the meaning of your own lives. And this is part of my conversation with the meaning of my life. Does that make sense? It raises the stakes. It does. it does. This is not just us goofing <laughs> off. Yeah. We are meaning making. Now there's a lot of we pressure are. to make this really insightful in a very interesting way. Um, no, I, I really appreciate that. And actually both your conversation about your spiritual training and also some of what you just raised about individual patterning and the ways in which that gets played out. I, I have been a believer 
at the ready. So, you know, uh, understanding that we get to do things that people working in giant companies that are less progressed do not because of the nature of who we are and what we do. That being said, all caveats aside, I have been a staunch believer at the ready that to do the kind of work that we do, being essentially disruptors inside complex organizations requires us to do our own work. And our own work on understanding how we interact with our environment, how we interact with systems, the ways in which our triggers do and don't serve us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the things that I don't need to explain to you. When you think about that notion as someone who obviously has done your own work and a lot of this work in the world, what do you think is reasonable for us to ask of the humans that we're interacting with at work? in terms of doing their own work so that they can show up in the collective? I think what is reasonable is to create an invitation and space and to support it. Mm-hmm. You can't make anyone do their own work. And you sure. never know all the reasons, of course, why they can't step through that particular doorway. It could be life circumstance. It could be old trauma. Mm-hmm. It could be all of the protective mechanisms, right? So, so attempting to withhold judgment from that is really important. So I think creating the doorways for it is important because part of it is you do the work not just for your own sake, but for the sake of the system and yes. the sake particular complex systems. And so here's the thing about doing that work is that I have a belief that makes you fundamentally more able for complexity, right? So if you're working within a very simple structure and your work is simple or at the worst complicated, mm-hmm. but not complex, and I'm drawing a little bit on Dave Snowden's terms from the Kinevin model of complexity, sure. which we can dive a little bit into or not later, but If your work is simple or complicated, you don't need a lot of complexity in your life. You can just do it. It can be routine. It can be automated. But then circumstances happen like COVID. I remember standing in front of the grocery store and and at the the first days of COVID when we didn't even know really much about how it was transmitted or even what it was. And we just knew things were shutting down. And I was like, oh, what used to be a simple act of walking through the door and getting my milk has suddenly become complex. Do I have the right things? I don't know if I have the gloves. There's all these other variables. Mm -hmm. Now I have to look at other people differently, right? And so, you know, here's a conversation. Are you able for it? Can you adapt to that? Can you make that an adaptive challenge and step into it? You know, or can you not face it, right? And, you know, this is a perfectly fine thing to not be able to face it and go home. But at some level, that becomes increasingly detrimental survival. So you need to figure out how to get your milk, right? And so this adaptation happens at scale, and organizations do this in in terms of um, engaging increasing complexity. With Wikimedia, our complexity existed because we ran Wikipedia in 290 different languages, each with their own governance structure. Mm -hmm. You know, at the time, it's incredibly complex. There isn't a manual about how to deal with that. Even the governance structures themselves don't make a lot of sense. Uh, I remember we had a, a fantastic community lead named Philippe Baudet, who would just do an orientation to newcomers about here's how the system works. And people were like, that doesn't make sense. Well, it was mm-hmm. organic. It evolved. It had multiple fail safes. It's incredibly resilient. But if you designed it, it wouldn't have been that resilient because it didn't evolve that way, which is a super interesting set of other concepts to get into around org design. But I'll, I'll return to the main point around complexity, which is the adaptive capacity for complexity, and particularly for working with people in complexity, tends to grow in alignment with human and adult development. And my particular background is adult development, drawing on the work of Robert Keegan and Suzanne Cook-Reuter in that space. And that is why those doorways 
should be created within organizations and people invited through them because that adaptive capacity is what you want at your manager and executive levels in order to meet the complexity of the world outside. Absolutely. Yeah. That that totally totally resonates. And and you know, I think the ways in which this shows up so frequently in a lot of systems that we work in and around is exactly to your point, people who have not cultivated a lot of personal insight and self-awareness just there's just a rigidity there. There's an inflexibility and a trying to bend complexity to an individual's will. And we all know sort of what that leads to. So I, I really like the way that you articulate it because it feels very non-judgmental and particularly in terms of talking about adult development. It's just like know where you are and continue cultivating if you can versus trying to show up to anything environmentally and bend it to your will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that bending, you know, it's it's, what happens then is a mismatch between the solution and the problem. Yes. And that's so tragic on so many levels because when you have a complex problem, a simple solution is just fundamentally inadequate and becomes a waste of energy and space and resources. My Zen teacher had a great story about it. He used to say that a person who's really unaware, it's like they're running through a house completely filled with tchotchkes and furniture. And just, it's, it's, it's like there's furniture and hangings and fabric everywhere. And they're running through the house with two torches. <laughs> and things are getting set on fire and they can't figure out why things are on fire. It's, it's the, you know, some people say that you engage in Zen not to save the world, but to save the world from yourself. So reducing the harm of your own unconscious patterning. You know, there's a great Jungian line, that which you are, that which stays in the unconscious comes back to us as fate. As fate. And, and so the degree to which you can interact a little bit more cleanly with the world and a little less about your projections and a little bit more about reality as it is and not as you want it to be. The more um, degrees of freedom you have to act in accordance with it. Mm-hmm. And so fundamentally, this is all, and this is what Zen Buddhism is about. This is all about degrees of freedom. You know, This is about freedom to not just be in your habituated patterns, but to choose during reaction. It's very much that Viktor Frankl, and this is where the human rights element is made fits in, but it's very much that Viktor Frankl piece. And this was a man if you've uh, uh, not encountered his work, I'm speaking broadly to the folks on the podcast. He was a, a spent years in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany, and he came up with this gorgeous text called Man's Search for Meaning. And he, he, in the worst of human circumstances, he said, between stimulus and response is a space, and in that space lies your freedom. And so I think about self-awareness and other awareness as expanding that space of freedom for yourself and other people. So I'm kind of curious, this has all been, I would, I mean, I would articulate it as a fairly deep conversation about the internal and, and, you know, the, the stories we're telling ourselves and, and principles and values. I'm curious now, tactically, when you're working with organizations and leaders, what would you describe as your approach to facilitation, to coaching, to engaging them in these conversations? Like, how do you how do you think about your craft of engagement, given that you have both a psychological and a spiritual background? What's your, what are your moves? The first is always listen, you know, listen into what the system is asking for and listen both for what's visible and invisible, right? And so that means listening deeply to the presenting problem because there always is one, you know, it's a turnover issue. It's a DEI, mm. diversity, equity, inclusion issue. It's a it's a culture issue. It's a scale issue. And usually the word just is before that. 
<laughs> exactly. It's terrifying. It's just X. Yes. And then be in gentle inquiry. You know, it's like, okay, let's, let's find out more. You know, and part of the role in that initial conversation is to help the person that you're in conversation with take a balcony perspective on it because you're usually in it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the gift of working with somebody outside right. is that, that, the, that you aren't of it and therefore you just by the very nature of the relationship have a different perspective. You know, and then I think the next set of moves is to imagine the next step. You know, my husband's got a great poem. Don't take the second step or the third step. Take the first step. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a pale, pale ground beneath your feet. You know, there's in some situations you might be called in to do strategic planning and talk about a vision of the organization. And, and you know, those are very particular circumstances. But often there's just the next step. What's the next conversation you need to have? You know, sometimes it's the contracting conversation. Sometimes it's the, let me help you think about this next interaction that you have with this employee and what those words need to sound like in your mouth. Let me get four more perspectives on this because in a complex situation, you know, there's one client I've got at the moment that is dealing with an incredibly challenging um, organizational implosion where, where one incident is seen very, very differently by different parts of the organization mm. with diversity and inclusion overtones to it, which makes everything a lot hairier because it lies on top of deep social trauma that exists mm-hmm. both at the scale of this last year and then into our history. So the important thing in there is like, let me make sure I don't have one perspective in there. So mm-hmm. it's a very much pragmatic step-by-step approach. I always find it funny when clients want, and I and understandably want, you know, the project work plan before I've even sure. entered the organization. I'm like, oh, yes. I am happy to make one up for you. And, and, and here's what that might look like. And just so you know, the number of times where it's actually mapped to that, as you well know, is, uh, is fairly minimal, right? Because you get in there and all the other things happen. Always ask them for their parenting plan when they exactly, <laughs> exactly. And going? when they are three, they will do X. <laughs> by the time they are five, their uh, dog they will rearing like, plan. You know, exactly, exactly. I don't even know what I want for lunch next week. I mean, that's the, yeah. that's one thing about self knowledge is is getting an insight into your own sheer unpredictability as a human. So when you think about sort of the invisible and the visible in organizations, which I think is a very cool way of articulating that, what what do you see as going really wrong when the invisible is ignored? And conversely, what could go exceptionally right when there's more attention paid? You know, I think people default that somebody, uh, I think Rebecca Solnit talks about the tyranny of the quantifiable. Right. And then it, it, it which, which has a tendency. Now, quantifiable is absolutely important. Nothing wrong with that. But it needs to be held in, in polarity. And this is something I learned both Barry Johnson, whose work is body work is called polarity management. It's a mm-hmm. brilliant body of work. And it's a way about explicitly holding these paradoxes and polarities in dynamic tension. And the visible and the invisible are one of them. Like there's a tangible pieces and that's the, you know, in some ways that's the practices and policies that we're talking about. But there's the intangible pieces that are harder to find, but as important. What's the relationship between those two parties? Oh, look, this is a part of the organization that has felt like it's a stepchild all of this time. Mm -hmm. How are they likely to interpret this new, this next reorganization? Is it another thing that's happening to them, you know, or is it happening with them? Is that going to cascade into a sense of losing some really valuable employees that we want to keep? You know, so that's the attention to the invisible, those dynamics between people and structure 
and implementations, and usually usually change implementations, that is is so important. How does that how does that live on top of what people are dealing with at a societal level? So mm-hmm. you know you can imagine you know, I've got an organization right now that's attempting to turn up the speed on some transformation rollouts they're doing in the midst of in the midst of being in a geographic area that's undergoing a pretty severe third wave that's uh, of COVID that's under resourced. You know, if you're not attending to that, it's hard to quantify that. But if you don't also realize that people are a year in exhausted, and especially the women of which this organization is primarily women, mm. many with young children are experiencing over time the exhaustion of undue burden of this pandemic on them mm-hmm. and not taking them into account. You're just setting yourself up to fail. And mm-hmm. that's the tragic thing. And I said it with a lot of compassion. That's the tragic thing about not minding the invisible not attending to those variables doesn't mean stop the transformation sure it just means how do you make more like i think crises require people to be most more empathetic and more directive at the same time Mm, yeah how do you do that how do you play with that and so and that means working with individual leaders about how they're working with their um, direct reports more often than not you know, and are there places where people have an opportunity to vent, where they feel supported? Are there unexpected things that can be done? You know, sometimes in some organizations, it's listening circles. In some other organizations, it's a little, you know, pick like my sister's organization. She's um, she's head of people for her game design company. And uh, it's it's so interesting to me that my sister and I have essentially, we were born 10 years apart. We we have different personalities and we've ended up in essentially the same profession. Um, <laughs> but she's, uh, you know, like getting really innovative about storytelling, about team building, about working in a virtual environment and the kind of energy that requires. There's so many different variables that, that comprise the invisible. And again, if you just try to architect a straight line through it, you'll fail. And that's the simplest way I can put it. So speaking of the visible and the invisible, I'm curious whether it be at Wikimedia or in other client spaces, what have you found it, you know, possible and fruitful and easy to kind of realize and manifest with these techniques? And what's been more elusive? Like what 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 do you wish you could wave a magic wand on and and see happen, but actually has been a little bit harder to manifest at scale? One of the challenges with complexity is that that it inherently encourages people to hunker down, mm-hmm. right? Like I, when things go really sideways, people start looking, you know, almost the position, instead of looking out towards horizon, people tend to sometimes look down at their feet. Totally understandable. Mm-hmm. Often the result of that is things like silos, you know, often the result is that they ask the wrong questions. Who's to blame for this? What's wrong <laughs> with this? You know, and they forget to ask and to lean into the more expansive. And that's where I think a real understanding of this intersection between complexity and adult development comes in. So I wish that more senior level leaders had an ability to understand the the importance of those sets of ideas in helping architect organizational life. It's hard to make room for it because the last thing you want to do, and I've seen this over and over again with organizations in COVID, is say we need to slow down to talk about ideas and their application rather than just do more. Because when you're coming in from a deficit feeling perspective, the thing that you want to do is paddle harder, right? To do more. Mm. And I think the counterintuitive move is to create some space and to 
be in a to create a different kind of conversation about what's needed, what's feeling complex. How do you ask different questions? Can you come out of it at a different angle? And that requires actual time. And that's the thing that feels like it's a scarcity thing. So it's one of those paradoxes that I think we're really working in this moment. One of the things that you've mentioned a couple of times that I just want to dive a little bit deeper into is poetry. So Mm -hmm. you've you've mentioned uh, that that is something that inspires and grounds you in this work. Um, How does it? How (laughs) How does poetry help you make or inspire change and 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 how do you think it can make room for more leadership capacity and creativity and insight and all of the things we've been talking about one of the organizations i work with we start every meeting with poetry and it's so mm-hmm. beautiful because it really it creates a different ground you know if you start and 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 the mission statement of this organization is is a poem it's a social justice organization, and the mission statement is Langston Hughes, let America be America again, the America that has never yet been and yet must be. Like nice. Those lines as the orienting structure for the organization, it creates, it's that mythic element, right? It creates, sets a tone, it names a paradox, and it has both an ideal sense to it and an aspect of realism to it. And so what poetry does is it can really capture aspects of existence and of human existence that are otherwise hard to get. Mm. And it came to me because a coach of mine, um, I was going through a really difficult time. I was in the middle of a divorce and a coach of mine left this on my answering machine when I was driving cross country. And it was Rainer Maria Rilke's lines. I'm not yet wise in my grief. So this great darkness makes me small. I'm so far in that everything is close to my face and everything close to my face is stone. I'm like, oh my gosh, who is this guy? How do I find him? It's like dead German guy. Okay. Um, and who, who articulates beautifully what it means to be caught between this and that. Mm-hmm. And so going, uh, just a, nipping a little bit into adult development, the fundamental motion of maturation is to be able to take that which you are subject to and make it object. Meaning, take something like anger, right? If you are completely subject to anger, you're just angry. All you can do is express it and often indiscriminately, mm-hmm. right? And that's part of the issues that we see in the social fabric of America at this moment mm-hmm. in time. If you can make it object, meaning that you cannot just experience it, but look at it, look at its antecedents, look at its consequences, look at your contribution to it. That is a more mature interaction with anger. So language is one of the ways that we humans have access to it. And I don't want to overprivilege language either, but it is a way of engaging with these things that are challenging to engage with. Grief is another one. So I think about Naomi Shihab Nye's poem, before you know kindness is the deepest thing, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. Understanding that and how it binds sorrow and kindness you can see kindness and sorrow and grief in different ways and you get to engage with sorrow and grief in different ways i have been in a diner should have been a diner once and i noticed that the waitress was just in a really odd place and it just asked her about him like are you okay she's like yeah we're all here but just you know like one of our other servers got into an accident this morning you know and i just thought you know seeing her sorrow how important kindness was in that moment you know and and being kind to her. And I knew, even without saying it, how much it mattered that she got a moment to just be herself and express it and didn't have to be chipper. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and I understand where she's coming from. She doesn't want to bring that energy to my table here. I mean, I'm just coming in for a bite to eat, right? The last thing she um, wants to do as a waitress in the role of waiting on me, which is a generous role, is to carry that energy, right? And yet, by my creating the opening for it, it created a little invitation, a different interaction. And it was part of the shape of her day in some subtle way that I'm sure I'll never understand. Um, but I did know that it meant something to her because she did come back and tell me. So it helps architect, lines of poetry help architect ways into life or help expand an understanding in a way that prose can't. And there's great poetry for workspaces. There's great poetry for, for healing. There's great poetry for, for organizational missions. My husband wrote a poem for Boeing called Working Together, and it has to do with um, the architecture of a wing. And he talks about how the lift of air and the shape of the wing is the visible and in the vi- invisible working together in common cause to create the lift of an airplane, right? Mm. And it's such a beautiful metaphor, the shape of a wing and the way that air moves over it, you know? And so, and you would never think about that in terms of, I think about that now whenever I'm on an airplane. I love that. So it, it shapes, it, it's, a sh- it's language because we're human is one of our shapers of reality. And because we get choice in that, we can engage with poetry and really beautiful prose to expand our shaping of reality. So it goes back into that personal awareness, personal development uh, bucket for me. Well, and I love that it brings a lot of those polarities and paradoxes to life and to the forefront, just like you described with the waitress. I guess to wrap up, I'm going to say, as someone who would probably bring a limerick to the first poetry (laughs) check-in, I'm craving poetry education and not just for me, but maybe for the listeners as well. So maybe to wrap up, we could ask if there were one or two or three poems or sources of poems that you might recommend, what would they be to kind of begin the the journey of bringing poetry into the world of work? Um this is where it's handy to be married to a poet. And I joke <laughs> about having a quotable husband. And and David White literally wrote a book called The Heart Arouse, and it's about poetry and belonging in the organizational setting. So that's a, a beginning. Of course, I love Raina Maria Rilke. Mary Oliver, of course, is gorgeous because she really brings in the natural world. And what Mary Oliver does, she asks beautiful questions. Mm-hmm. You know, what will you do with your precious life? Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 she just has a a gorgeous sense of opening into the simple and to nature. I love Antonio Machado. He's got this gorgeous lines of you walker by walking, you make the path, you know, walker, there is no path. You make the path by walking. And hmm. it's, it's more beautiful in Spanish. And it really speaks to the unknown, right? Every founder, every uh, startup, every entrepreneur knows that deep truth in their beings that they're making the path by walking it. And sometimes it just helps to anchor their experience in those lines because it can be incredibly validating, you know. And so a lot of great poetry has to do with this this just being human, this being in this body, in this world. You know, Rilke's got these great lines of, in one moment, your life feels a stone within you and another a star. You know, and it speaks to how we can be so heavy some days mm-hmm. and life can feel so weighted down. And then we can feel so euphoric in other moments and see the full range of possibilities. So architects, this relationship that we have between ground and horizon, which is this being human. 
Well, I think being human seems like a pretty good place to draw things to a close. That's what we're trying to do so. here all the time. <laughs> it Dale, is, it is. Thank you so much for coming. I'm curious, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? No, I'm in process of redesigning my website. At some point, there'll be something there. I tend to hover. <laughs> I, I tend to be more of a background person. A lot of things about me are about our word of mouth and, and in oblique ways, which I kind of enjoy. And yet I realize that there's there are things that I have to offer the world. So I appreciate the question. And I'm in the midst of that inquiry myself. Gail, thank, thank you, you so much for joining us. This was oh, great. I had so much fun. Amazing. Uh, And for our listeners, if you like what you've been hearing, a review would mean a ton to us or forward our show to someone who needs it. Perhaps someone who needs more poetry in their lives. Yeah. In fact, you could make your review a poem. We'd appreciate that. Um, A quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at the ready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.